Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, we're breaking into your grandma's medicine cabinet as Hallie gives us a brief history of cure-alls. With your usual dose of foul language, expect a little extra grossness as we look at remedies of the past. Now come on in. It's time for your appointment. Like, I was, did the dishes this morning and cleaned the fish tank. Like, I think that's all I have to do today. I'll just play Dragon Age for the rest of the day. <laughs> I had this feeling. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess I did not set up, like, a reminder or anything. I totally <laughs> failed. <laughs> I had that moment where I was like, shit. After the last couple of weeks of me not knowing up from down, like, I probably fucked this up. <laughs> All right, let me get my life sorted. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Kitty. Good job. All right. Uh, I guess we should probably start our... Oh, yeah. Shit. Hold on. Oops. Ah! I even pulled it over to the other screen and didn't hit the button. I'm I'm winning today. We're both doing so well. It's fine. <laughs> Nathan's just a glue that holds us together. Yeah, apparently. I was like, oh, this is weird. It's... There's only two of us, Kitty. Ah. All right. So welcome back to Human Exception. Obviously, as you can tell, it's just Hallie and I today. And Nathan's just got way more important things to do. So... We're going to share our stories, and then we'll do one with him later. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. So uh, this week, we're doing medicine, in <laughs> a broad term. So we've all kind of done something related to medicine or health. I very quickly, I pulled a Kayla, actually. I started getting sucked into this black hole of <laughs> fascinating things. Where I was like, oh, but and this. Oh, but I could do this. And then it turned into like 15 pages. I went, no, <laughs> this is this is out of control. We have to, I need to parse this down. Well, you did take a topic that is just massive. I know. I'm insane. What can I say? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, mine it went relatively uh, quick, actually. I was like, huh, I'm done. <laughs> so it's what been like the research. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? Oh, no. Everything is just fucked up now. Everything's backwards. Uh, who goes first? Well, I mean, I'm solid either way. So, uh, let's let's let you go first. Ew. All right. So, I love a good con artist, and I love a good con artist story, and. We have been convincing ourselves that we can cure what ails us with a tincture or a balm or the bile from a badger or (laughs) (laughs) whatever weird shit we decided to imbibe. Fucking weird as shit. Just to name a few. Just to name a few. Oh, my God. There were so many examples. So I pulled out some real gems, stuff that I hadn't heard of because 
I think a lot of people are familiar with, oh, drugs used to be laced with cocaine and, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, but I found some real winners. I went, are you kidding me? Did we really? Yeah, we really did that. Okay. <laughs> There's one that's a little troubling. <laughs> Do you want to say what your, your theme is? Yep. So we're going to look at a very, very brief history of cure-alls. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, uh, I I started going down different paths of like, oh, but medicine shows. Oh, but this. Oh, but I'm like, okay, we just need to look at some of this. Um, this overall history there, the main source on this. And again, as always, it'll be in the show notes, but I really encourage you all to, to read the article. Cause I'm just going to be um, paraphrasing and quoting from it. There's an article from the Atlantic. Um, oh, this was what January 10th, 2017. It's called how ancient cure-alls paved the way for drug regulation. <laughs> it is bananas. I had no idea about any of this and I was so happy because <laughs> it is completely fascinating. Um, so we'll actually, before we get there, we'll go all the way back to the word pancia or panchia, however you want to pronounce it. Um, it is actually the name of the Greek goddess of the universal remedy, panacea. Um, <laughs> and it's the, the, the claim will say was that she had the ability to cure all diseases and even prolong life indefinitely. So I didn't know there was a cure-all God. There's a cure-all God. I know. I went, wow, we have always tried to find the the golden elixir, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> we have always tried to find I almost said magic bullet and I was like, nope, that doesn't work. Um <laughs> it's it's just so fascinating. So alchemists decided to to pray to her uh to try to find the truth of the elixir of life things like the philosopher's stone um there were scholars from ancient greek and rome that described different kinds of plants that were called panacea or panaceas um and then there's a lot of scientific names that i'm not even going to try to pronounce uh they look like poisons <laughs> The uh, even in the Colorado desert region of what's now California, there were a, a group of native peoples who used red sap of the elephant tree as a panacea. Um, oh God, the Latin genus name of uh, ginseng is Panax. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a late, that sounds like a patented drug it does oh we'll get to patented medicines <laughs> we'll get there too for sure it's just it the whole thing even the history behind panacea or panacea is so fascinating and now it has a, a negative context to it because it kind of describes the overuse of any one solution to solve a bunch of different problems and that's where you get into things like snake oil and quackery essentially if it says it cures a bunch of things, it doesn't cure anything. It's probably going to poison you. It could even kill you. So maybe don't, you know, take stuff like that. But that Atlantic article um, looked at who is considered to be the father of modern drug regulation. And it was a guy way back who reigned in uh, Pontus. He was the king of Pontus. His name was Mithridates the Sixth. <laughs> Yes. 
So that's a name that was so good that needed to use it six times. This, yeah, I was like, wow, I gotta think about how to say this for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Mithridates, Mithridates, sure. Um, so Pontus, this little kingdom, was actually the southern edge of on um, the southern edge of the Black Sea. And he reigned from 120 to 63 BCE. Huh. All the way back. Way back. So long ago. <laughs> but this guy was a toxicologist. And he actually did some of his, we'll say, uh, best work between waging wars on Rome. and. His best efforts actually created a universal antidote that then paved the way for modern drug regulation. Um, poison was used a lot back in the day. Mm, you have uh, Cleopatra VII, who killed herself by a snake bite in 30 BCE. Uh, Mithridates' uh, contemporary, uh, a name that I'm going to butcher completely, uh, Ariathes, there we go. The sixth, who was the ki uh, king of another area just south of Pontus, actually came to power after his five oldest brothers were poisoned, historians think, by their mother. Whoa. Yeah, she wanted uh, her, her youngest son to be on the throne, so she killed her other son. <laughs> Shit, mother of the year, right? Brutal! Just like... Yeah, it's it's way past, you know, no wire hangers kind of a thing. It's just horrible. <laughs> Joan Crawford joke. Okay. Um, so Mithridates actually learned about poisons at a really young age. His father, the fifth, was poisoned, possibly at his mother's behest. There's a lot of poisoning happening by moms. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Um, this is uh, kind of assumed there's no direct proof, but there's a book called The Poison King. And that was written by Adrienne Mayer, who was Mithridates the sixth biographer. So she actually wrote about him as he was aging. Said, oh, yeah, by the way, his dad was poisoned, probably by the grandma. Like, there's just nonsense going on in this family. <laughs> It's, it's there's more drama happening here than in a Shakespeare play. It's impressive <laughs> what is happening. <laughs> uh, and then one of your and my favorite uh, Roman natural historians, Pliny oh, the yes. Elder. Oh yes, <laughs> there he is. There is Pliny the Elder. Um, actually called Mithridates the sixth. Uh, he said he had a brilliant intellect and wide interests and was an especially diligent student of medicine who collected detailed knowledge from all his subjects. Hmm. And he did. If that sounds not good, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. So when Mithridates became king, he pulled in all these people to his court, physicians, scientists, shamans, and he was, we'll say, obsessed with the idea of creating some kind of foolproof remedy for toxins and poisons. A cure-all, you might say. Yeah, he started all of this. I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Good job, buddy. Look what you set us on. <sighs> he also loved to brew his own poisons. He grew poisonous plants. And then he tested them on condemned criminals. Oh. Uh-huh. 
This gets better. It just gets better as we go. Um, so his most famous of poisons was actually named after him, uh, Mithridatium. And it was taken daily as an electory. And I had to look this up. An electory is a pill made of paste and it used honey as a binding agent. And it was technically a poison in large doses, but taken every day in very small doses. Mithridates thought it would be a cure-all. <laughs> great. It's great. If so it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Strong. I know. I well, uh, This dude lived a long time <laughs> taking this Dude's stuff. There's got to be some sort of day. truth there, right? Seriously. Or, you know, it's like when you take colloidal silver and you turn blue. Like, there's some strange... <laughs> There's some strange consequence to it. Um, Pliny had actually also said that by his unaided efforts, he thought out the plan of drinking poison daily after first taking remedies in order that sheer custom might render it harmless. Basically what you said. <laughs> um, yeah. So he decided he was going to keep improving his health and immunize him at the same time. What doesn't kill you? And there are still surviving recipes of this Mithridatium. It lists dozens of ingredients. So there's some stuff on there uh, that you might expect. Opium. Not surprising. Uh, so <laughs> you can't feel there. the poison. <laughs> uh-huh. You just feel real good. You don't have any problem taking it every day. Uh, myrrh was in there. And then something called uh, castoreum, which is a substance found in oh. beaver testicles. Low what? Castoreum. Okay. Yep. And he was just hunting down it, beavers. And- yeah, I, I would like to think that Mithridat the Sixth was probably an expert beaver hunter at this point, or he had someone in his court who was. <laughs> is this in Greece? This is in Rome. Or no, this is Pontus. So south of Rome on the edge of the Black Sea. I didn't know it had beavers over there. Hey. Maybe they were like giant beavers. We don't. <laughs> this was 120 BCE. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. For some reason, I think that beavers are only in North America. But maybe I'm just I'm making that. Up. I should have checked the beaver history. Apparently, I didn't even think about that. that. Obvious. <laughs> Obviously. So when he ruled for decades, he ruled from 120 to 63 BCE. He took this concoction daily for that long. And then in 63 BCE, Romans were about to take him, uh, to capture him alive. And so he tries to commit suicide by poison. <laughs> uh-huh. But according to ancient chroniclers, the daily dosing that he did worked so well, he didn't die. <laughs> Sucker. It made him immune to a bunch of stuff. But there's a couple of different versions of the story. So the most common version of this story was that Mithridates actually made one of his soldiers gut him with a knife. Oof. Yeah, nasty way to go. Just a gut wound? Oh my god. There's so many better ways. <laughs> I know! Just jump off a cliff! Like, do something! Oh god! Oh, You've got a so, couple big arteries. You'll be done in a few oh, seconds. Yeah, man. really! Yeah, garrot him. Like, do something. I was, I, For I, a yeah. man of medicine, this was his plan. <laughs> Yeah, just just shiv me. Just <laughs> he could have been addled by that point. I would like to think he was probably so out of his mind by taking a concoction made out of opium <laughs> and beaver testicles that 
just good lord. So after he died, um, the Romans were actually inspired by him. And because poisoning was already pretty popular in Rome, I cannot believe I just said that. Um, <laughs> it was super in at the time. It was totally fetch. Um, by the end <laughs> of the Republic, it actually made the Romans very keen to acquire this universal antidote that Mithridates had been writing about for decades. This worked out so well for him. He stabbed him, got himself stabbed in the gut afterwards, totally. but it was good totally. up until then. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> so what happens next after this? There's some history that gets kind of skipped around. And then we come to Andromachus. He was the personal physician of Nero. Oh, boy. So okay. now we're, we're into Nero. Yep. And he actually took the what the Romans thought was the original recipe to this concoction that Mithridates had made. And he created his own version of it called Theriac. He added more opium, some viper flesh. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that the bodies of venomous animals have to contain antidotes. They just have to. It just totally makes sense. <laughs> I have no idea. He's why. not entirely wrong. <laughs> entirely wrong but at the same time like viper scales what the frick is that gonna do mm. adds a texture oh gross <laughs> <laughs> no thank you um so <laughs> on top of all of this uh, it, theriac just started to become really popular a remedy for all ailments a more uh modern cure-all not just a poison. Uh, he prescribed <laughs> it to the emperor and made it popular. So there we go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, during this time, and even a little bit before, um, when it came to medicines, the Romans actually held that more expensive and exotic ingredients meant that they were higher quality and more effective, which is fascinating. Obviously. Capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I'm blown away by that. Um, and then, of course, you know, the medicine makers make more money and on and on. So there's a I love this, too. There's a quote from a pharmacological historian. I want that job. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, their name is Lawrence Totalin. And they had said physicians were well aware of the attraction that such an expensive drug could have on a wealthy clientele. And so to impress their clients, they complete or they competed to introduce spices and other rare, rare products in their recipes and then little by little one expensive ingredient in a recipe ceased to be sufficient and more and more were added that led <laughs> to the creation of expensive anecdotes to uh such as mithridatium and theriac in their more modern iterations crazy so there's a there's a couple more like really interesting bullet points about how universal antidotes started to become super popular, not just in the Mediterranean, but across the world as traders moved back and forth more and more. Um, so in the 8th century, theriacs appeared in Islamic medical texts as poison repellents and cure-alls. Um, some historians think that a lot of these uh, theriacs actually were re-entered into Western society through then translated Greek and Roman texts that were preserved by Islamic scholars and then reintroduced into the Mediterranean again. So there's this weird cycle that we're doing. <laughs> I know. I was like, what are we? Why are we doing this? y'all?" New and improved. 
<laughs> it worked in 63 BCE so well that he had to cut himself. Um, <laughs> these things became popular in medieval Europe during the Black Plague, of course. You don't say. Ah, I wonder why. And then the invention of the printing press facilitated the spreading of recipes. There is no internationally universal recipes, uh, really, for what could and couldn't be called a theriac at this point, because as the centuries went on, that word just started to mean antidote, really. That's all it meant. And it could be anything. It could be anything, including a 60-ingredient theriac uh, that was uh, discovered, quote-unquote, in Venice. 60 ingredients. And it was dubbed Venetian treckle by the English. <laughs> <laughs> if it has treckle in the title, it ain't going to be good. Uh, do we have a rough summary of what's in it? Nope. <laughs> Many things. <laughs> the entire Many kitchen. things. And it changed from apothecary to apothecary. Oh, yes. So you could go around the corner and buy four different versions of it. And, you know, probably die. <laughs> especially when you mix them <laughs> oh god um, because the poor apothecaries would produce the cheaper versions of the expensive remedies and because if they couldn't afford the expensive ingredients they pass off the cheaper medicine as a high end one so now we have counterfeits of cure-alls <laughs> I love Which I'm sure we're, I'm sure we're just as good as the name oh. brand I'm I'm sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're getting into the generics, but really piss poor versions of them. <laughs> so this is where we start paving the way for regulation. Um, and this was originally meant to prevent apothecaries from passing off those cheap or counterfeit versions as expensive ones um, or poor quality ones that didn't adhere to the official recipes. Again, there was no real official recipe. Uh, this is all government oversight <laughs> in a weird kind of way. Um, so it was very thorough. <laughs> it was very, yes. I'm sure someone was standing there with a clipboard going, mm hmm, opium, yes. Mm, beaver testicles, <laughs> eating, yes. Mm. I'm sure that's exactly how that worked. Uh, so city authorities and unions started to get involved because they're now overseeing production. And they started to form the foundation of what we consider to be modern drug regulation. And uh, one of the first noted pieces of this actually started in 1397 in Sicily. Uh, that town, really a city at that point, was a key point of cultural exchange. There were a lot of traders coming there. It was seen as like a central location. And the ruler at the time was King Martin II. And he appointed his personal physician to head a committee called the Proto Medicato. And it was to supervise all things medical. All of it them under like one person. Society. <laughs> yeah, it does. The Illuminati. <laughs> um, uh, but he's, he's overseeing everything medical. Surgery. Pharmacology. Everything. Well, consistently nice. <laughs> it is. It's one person. Consistently bad. It's fine. It's bad. It's bad. Um, and the ideal was that through a direct representative, then King Martin II could oversee the medical trade and then legislate how apothecaries made their medicines. So it's considered to be one of the first notions of like royal regulation over medicine and medical procedures in the modern age. 
Uh, and then we, if we look at other examples, in 1540, Hen, uh, Henry VIII permitted his Royal College of Physicians to assign four of its members to be official inspectors of the London apothecary <laughs> remedies. Yep. They were actually the king's secret medical police. Oh, my God. <laughs> you said that. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, they would examine ingredients, they would look at pharmacological wares, and if the products were judged to be defective or corrupted or not meet uh, certain um, whatever they decided to pass down as regulation <laughs> made in these medicines, yep, whatever they saw fit, it, it flew. Yep. I was, oh, that could be real bad. Uh, but what I found really interesting, they pointed this out in the Atlantic article, is that if the apothecaries refused to allow the inspectors inside their shops or homes, they would be fined, as would the negligent inspectors, because they weren't able oh. to get in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then Henry's daughter, Mary I, actually improved upon the law in an act of 1553 to ensure that the inspectors examined wares in the full view of apothecaries. And didn't, uh, you know, plant anything. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, of course, with regulation then arises a black market. So we start getting these black markets for Theriax. And they exist right alongside the official ones. You have salesmen hawking their own remedies virtues. And it's hard then for the public to start judging what they were consuming and if it was legitimate, quote unquote, medicine or not. So now we start to see the rise of things like snake oil. Am I consuming the real poison yeah. or is this the fake poison? Is this real cocaine or? <laughs> <laughs> so there was another attempt to make sure that everyone's making medicines properly and doctors start getting involved. You would think they would have done that beforehand, but, you know, yeah. um, they start circulating these things called pharmacopoeias. Then there are manuals that outline official drug preparation. So it's a do it yourself bomb manual <laughs> because anybody could buy them. Anybody could buy these things. This can't go wrong. No, nope, not at all. Um, there was the, uh, a note in the article about the first modern formulary for apothecaries. It actually came from the Florence Physicians Guild in 1498. So this is all happening kind of all at once, but in popping up in different parts of the world. And then you start to see all of this history come together as trade, communication, printing, all start to combine. Um, there were lots of other cities that followed suit in Europe, working with doctors to actually put these Here's a recipe for. <laughs> oh, dear. Yep. Um, and then in 1618, the official formula for Mithridatium was published in the London Pharmacopoeia, uh, and its production flourished among anyone who wanted to try to make it. <laughs> it's fine. Um, <laughs> and then what I also found so fascinating about all of this is that as cure-alls get more popular, of course, then rises skepticism. Because we start getting into the Renaissance era and then we, you know, people start working on things like the scientific method and they start experimenting more. Yep. And we're, there's all, a doctor. we're all taking cure-alls, but we're all still getting sick we're and dying. We're all still ill. <laughs> it might not have anything to do with hygiene. It has nothing to do with the fact that we're throwing out our own waste <laughs> onto the streets. 
and letting horses crap everywhere. It has nothing to do with, with any of that. No. Lack of indoor plumbing, none of it. This has to do with the fact that you took that shitty, that shitty theory. <laughs> so there's a, a French doctor in the 1600s named Guy Patin, and he dismissed exotic remedies in favor of much more simpler proven ones because he believed that anything that helps people shouldn't be rare or expensive. Shocking. Shocking. Wow. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It was way ahead of his time. Um, those I'm doctors got killed were, for it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. The, these types of doctors were of course in the minority until about the 18th century when the trend of what's called polypharmacy or taking multiple drugs or drugs with the same ingredients at the same time that began to decline because of a growing recognition of drug interaction. <laughs> I know it's really interesting. And at the same time, we start seeing some of the superstition around ingredients fall away and more focus on things that have been proven scientifically. So now, is this organic arsenic or <laughs> right? Yes. D- does this have GMO? Does it, does it have GMO? <laughs> Did you get that from the... Okay. I can just... Oh my god. <laughs> I had so much fun with this. It's ridiculous. So, we're going to go from cure-alls to patent medicines. And I'm going to send you a link because these pictures are fascinating. This is from the Smithsonian. So I'm sure Kayla will put it in the show notes. Um, the Smithsonian Museum has a ton of these pots and bottles and really cool things that when you read the labels you go oh my god (laughs) so patent medicines as we start getting into the 19th century uh with the age of the industrial era and uh in that weird part of history where people are becoming more book learned and there are more people doing experiments and we see the rise of of cures and vaccines and that type of thing but also still this really odd belief that yes we can still cure everything that we have problems with with a bottle of sb goff's magic oil linment which claimed to treat among other things because i'm not going to read the entire fucking thing uh rheumatism neuralgia toothache earache stiffness in the joints weakness in the cider back sprains bruises sore throat diarrhea dysentery Frosted feet. What is frosted feet? I don't know. Okay. Felons. Mm. Corns. Chapped or cracked hands. Pimples. Oh, and it also cured horses. So, you know. <laughs> it's great. It's fine. I'm sure that the, what is good for the horse is good for the human. Uh, so anyways, obviously, um, obviously <laughs> yep. Um, patent medicines become really popular. So they originally refer to medications whose ingredients had been granted this government protection that we start seeing more and more of government protection, government regulation. But in patent medicines, it was really looking at government protection for exclusivity. We are patenting these things. Um, the recipes of most of, pardon me, (coughs) the 19th century patent medicines were not officially patented. At all. They just said it. They just <laughs> said it was a patent med- I know. The the shenanigans <laughs> that are happening right now. 
most of the producers, which were small family operations, used ingredients quite similar to the competitors. <clears throat> One of the main ones being vegetable extra extracts laced with ample doses of alcohol. So, you know. Oh. Fine. Um, there was no regulation on proprietary or quack medicines, so they could be very deadly. And they were medicines with questionable effectiveness. The contents were usually a family secret. I'm like, no, it's poison. <laughs> poison. Might lose your hair and then just die. It's poison. Um, but proprietary medicines originated in England. And they were manufactured under grants or patents of royal favor. <laughs> to those who provided medicine to the royal family. And then these medicines were exported to America in the 18th century. There are a couple of examples that I found <clears throat> both horrifying and amusing. One was called Daffy's Elixir Salutis for colic and griping. For Okay, griping, huh? Griping, yeah. I don't, okay. So if you just have a whiny person in your family. It's, okay. Uh, Dr. Bateman's pectoral drops. Oh, I have a pectoral. question about that. Pectoral, <laughs> mm, right on the tits. Okay. Um, and then John Hooper's female pills. It's like, here are all that ails you. Yeah. All your women problems. Oh, there was a lot of that. Yeah. Um, these medicines were sold by everybody. Postmasters, goldsmiths, grocers, tailors. Basically anyone who had a shingle out as a merchant could sell this stuff. <laughs> Which means you don't know whether it was tampered with or not. And then by the middle of the 19th century, the manufacture of products like these had become this huge industry in America because capitalism. Um, hmm. They were often high in alcoholic content. And of course, they were very popular because it was they were considered to be therapeutic. <laughs> <laughs> also helps that they were fortified with morphine, opium, and or cocaine, <clears throat> or all three. Uh, a lot of these were advertised for infants and children. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, meant to help with colic or fussiness. You know, it's not like rubbing whiskey on a kid's gums. This is, hey, kid, you want some opium? <laughs> you know, just, okay. Um, it soothes them so much. I just stop crying. It's so nice. It's so amazing. You could cure anything with these patent medicines. Venereal diseases, tuberculosis, dyspepsia, cancer, female complaints, <laughs> all of it. Yeah, if I take enough, if I take enough drugs, I'm sure I'll stop yeah, feeling anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, woo, uh, and not feel yourself right into a grave. Um, so <laughs> there was not any kind of regulation passed in the states until 1906. And it was a Pure Food and Drug Act passed in Congress that year with really strong support from President Teddy Roosevelt. And that actually paved the way for public health action against unlabeled or unsafe ingredients, misleading advertising, the practice of quackery, and similar rackets. Unfortunately, uh, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot that's been written about this, um, the FDA here in the States, uh, there, there's a lot of problems with... Um, vitamins and and that kind of thing oh, supplements yeah. yeah you can get away with a lot still so it's disturbing all right so let's let's get into the horrifying thing i'm going to put a content warning on this this is not good 
some of these some of these are real bad. I'm going to start with a winner. Let's just get it out of the way. Um, during a plague outbreak in 1665 in London, school children were told to smoke cigarettes. So, <laughs> yep, at the time they were thought to be disinfectants. Sure. What struck me as completely just fucked up was that in addition there were there was something called tobacco smoke enemas. Oh, ew. Here we go. Yep. So this is the source of a common idiom about blowing smoke up your ass. Yeah, <laughs> that's where that comes from. Yep. <laughs> I think I laughed for five minutes when I read that. <laughs> now you know. So if that comes up on trivia night. <laughs> um, oh, God. Uh, so tobacco smoke enemas were developed as kind of a 18th century version of CPR. Okay. <laughs> same. Totally the same. <laughs> it's my favorite thing ever. I <laughs> it was actually made by members of the institution for affording immediate relief to persons apparently dead from drowning. <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs> okay. They work on their acronym. <laughs> so they would drag the victim out of the River Thames. Strip him or her down and use an enema to literally blow smoke into the person, either manually or with bellows. How successful was this? <laughs> they were already dead. I... <laughs> I have never read something so insane before. Huh, manually. It's not working, but we'll keep trying. <laughs> How do you... <laughs> like... Sorry, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna pause for a second while I laugh hysterically because. Oh, and by the way, go look up the. Uh, Kayla and I know this, but if you don't know the origins of the word hysterical, mm. <laughs> um, oh god, that's another episode. <laughs> that's a different episode completely. I, uh, I, all I could think, and please, just anyone who's sensitive, just I, yeah, just warn yourselves here. Give yourself a second. If you're manually blowing smoke into someone's ass. <laughs> so, this person is dead you've stripped them down so they've already been humiliated in death you're putting them on the banks of the river which River Thames is just muddy as shit like it's just awful and it was super polluted it still kind of is but um, and then you are Pressing your face into their ass cheeks and blowing smoke up their ass. I cannot. Oh my god! Think about that. I was thinking like there's a tube, but you know what? You're. That's <laughs> probably not how that was happening. That was. Probably, I highly oh doubt it. I highly doubt they did that. And if if there was a tube, that makes it worse. <laughs> yeah. Let me get this rubber hose. Like. Well, the part that I'm thinking of, which is kind of gross, is the fact that we lose control of our insides yeah, when we die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God. Black. All right. Well, that was a fun. Like the fact that this was tried more than once. More than once. Fuck. Yeah, because mouth-to-mouth resuscitation was not invented until the 1950s. So instead, let our first solution was to put our mouths on your butts instead of your. <laughs> face because you're not breathing right. where like, did the that logic come from is just <laughs> there's no logic 
I'm dead. <laughs> We're going to get into something also really nasty. Um, that is a side kind of like sideways comical. This is horrible. So uh, the phrase, you are what you eat, applies to a certain school of thought. Um, ancient Romans clamored for gladiator blood for strength hot. and vitality. Yep, it's hot. Yep, it's, it goes along with those pectoral drops. <laughs> Uh, it was also thought to be a cure for epilepsy. Gladiator blood. <laughs> uh, that rationale actually ma- was maintained for centuries based on Englishman Edward Brown's 1668 observation that people attended executions, I have heard this before, to collect the blood of victims. Yeah. And then... Yeah, I've heard... Oh my God, yeah. Yep, I've heard that before. I know I read that and I went, oh my God, that's where that comes from. This one's bad. So just, again... Just like content warning, content warning. Oh my god. Uh, in the early 1600s, there was a German physician who suggested that the cure for a range of conditions was making a jerky out of the corpses of 24 year old redheads. That's oddly specific. I know. They he would chop up their bodies, mash the bits in wine, myrrh, and aloe before dry curing them. How was he getting away with this legally? <laughs> I don't know. How did grave robbers get away with stuff? Like, well, dude, like. Doctors weren't even allowed to deal with bodies during this yeah. time. He's like full Queenie Todd in the background. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's so bad. Oh, God. All right. So let's talk about something that isn't quite so bad as we round up here. Let's look at salves and ointments and bombs. Some good consequences for change. <laughs> so I'm going to give you this link of some advertisements that are really interesting. The first one uh, advertises Merchant's Gargling Oil Almanac. That also is mm. a dream book. Yep. Uh, printed and published by the Merchant's Gargling Oil Company, Lockport, New York. There you go. The advertisements are really cool looking. They, have that, they definitely have that vibe to them. I was like, why is she sitting on a moon with an owl and the owl is winking? What's going so on here? So good. Um, so when we went down to Atlanta, we met up with Steve and we went to the Coca-Cola factory, <laughs> the world, world of Coke. And like, yeah, there's yep. a whole segment of like history and all the like ads and like patent, like medicine stuff from when it was considered a medicine. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it was great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that stuff is just so interesting. And it's right around this time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Coke was invented in what, the late 1800s? Yeah, something like that. And it was, yeah, it was invented as like a medicine. <laughs> as a medicine. Yeah, as a patent medicine. Um, so this, buy it at your local pharmacy. <laughs> buy it at your local pharmacy, drink it and feel the bubbles. Um, <laughs> and that goes along with all of these things. If you couldn't imbibe it, you could put it on your skin. You could put it in your hair. You could put it on the bottom of your feet. You could do all of these things. Um, so a lot of these topical preparations were meant to treat common skin and scalp and hair problems. And they're kind of seen as the precursors to the -the over-the-counter skincare and like first aid ointments, which makes sense. So a lot of the um, brands for topical preparations that were produced starting in the late 1800s remain available today, like Bag Bomb and White Cloverine, depending on where you're at in the world. Mm. Um, Vaseline was invented in 1872, for example. Um, It was packed in a tin 
Liniments were generally bottled. Uh, Liniments were liquids that had this really high alcohol content. And then they suspended the oils in uh, like mint or pepper oil. And the oils were thought to act as a counter irritant, quote unquote. So the idea was that they stimulated mild irritation of the skin with the aim of lessening pain or inflammation in other areas of the body. (laughs) Let me just rub this chili pepper on my face and then my stomach won't hurt. (laughs) Like... Cool. Sounds like a plan. Um, and this is where we get into even the beauty standards of the 19th and t- early 20th century, because there started to be a high priority on clear skin and full, thick hair. And people would use these salves and liniments to remedy complexion issues, scalp conditions, hair loss, and the products were eventually advertised to serve the whole family. So, from all the way from Mithridates to stuff that you put on your face because you have a pimple it all stems from our aim to look and feel better which is fascinating (laughs) to me um and then you get into also at the time some of these older recipes for salves and ointments were actually marketed as for man or beast which is where we were talking about (laughs) it's good for you and your horse cool (laughs) Um, ideally meant to help with chafing and dry skin that you would see in humans or their pets or livestock or like, um, uh, oh God, what's the word that I want? Um, like skin irritants, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Because humans and their animals were sharing common environments. They were in close contact with each other. Uh, a rider and a horse might be dealing with saddle-chafed skin, for example. There are fungal infections like ringworm and parasitic infections like mange that are easy to pass between human and animal. Um, what's funny is that the packaging might differ. It's like now when you see like razors for women, razors uh. for men. It's the same <laughs> goddamn razor except the upcharges on the pink For the one. color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what they would do basically the same thing. They would be like four humans. And then over here, four horses. And it's the exact same thing, but one would be more expensive. Okay. <laughs> um, I found a note looking at this. It's a really specific example, but I thought it was interesting to kind of round this out. So in the early 1900s, there was a spa in the Czech Republic. And when people walked in, they were immediately breathing in irradiated air. And the source of the radiation was a hot spring that emanated radon. This is fine. Yep, this is fine. So patients were soaking in irradiated water. They were inhaling radon directly through tubes. And there were a few early studies that claimed that radium placed near tumors would shrink the tumors. So at the time, (laughs) doctors thought that more was better. And as one historian noted, it's like the difference between treating something with a bomb and treating something with a scalpel. <laughs> so, and I can, I think I've told you this story before. The crazy lady we bought our house off of, uh, who was a nurse, did not believe in radon. Radon's <laughs> literally on the table of elements. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's natural in the world. Um, but radon so exposure. Good for you. <laughs> Oh, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Yeah, she didn't believe in it. And I was like, what the fuck? Uh, it, radon exposure is a leading cause of lung cancer. And then, of course, the invention of the Geiger counter. I didn't realize it was in 1928. Huh. Somehow, I thought it was like a newer thing. Yeah, that, that's earlier um, than I would have expected. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I I was thinking like 40s or 50s for some, like with the rise of the atom bomb and that kind of thing. Like I I don't yeah. know why I connected those two in my head, but now we know that the Geiger counter was helping physicians measure the doses of chemicals, and this leads to them going, "Oh, hey, radon's bad. Maybe don't. <laughs> Maybe don't bring that in. Maybe don't sit in the water. Don't do that." It's why we have radon treatments in our basements. Why I've got one. Um, and this eventually paved the way for medical breakthroughs that were in, would enable radiation to be used for cancer treatments instead of just breathing radon. You don't do that. <laughs> don't do it. So essentially, that is a really strange, quick, worldwide tour of bizarre shit <laughs> that started with a dude the king of Pontus back in 120 BCE who thought, Hey, what if I drink poison every day for like six decades? What would happen? <laughs> you're alls. They cure nothing. Don't do it. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a miracle that humans have survived this long. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I, I can still cannot get over the tobacco smoke thing. I, Oh my God. That's brutal. That <laughs> even more than the redhead thing, because that was like one crazy dude who was going full Hannibal Lecter in his basement. <laughs> People in England legitimately thought, hey, if your cousin, your cousin Toddwell just fell into the Thames, it was fine. Just go over there and, you know, blow smoke up his head. <laughs> this broke me. Jesus. This broke oh me when I put it together. I was like, oh, this is going That's to be fair. good. And that's it for this week. Next week, I'll talk about another world pandemic that happened 15 years ago that you probably have never heard of, known as the Corrupted Blood Incident. And Nathan will tell you all about the terrifying reality of sleep paralysis. As always, links, sources, and pictures can all be found on our website, thehumanexception.com. And to keep up to date with the latest hex news, follow us on Twitter or Facebook at The Human Exception. And if you have an idea of something you'd like us to cover, additional information that proves us wrong, or you just want to say hi, hit us up on one of our socials or at thehumanexception at gmail.com. That's all, my humans. Keep on keeping on. <laughs>